0: Well, Mark chapter 16, beginning in verse one, if you've got your Bibles there and you want to turn or tap to follow along with me. Mark 16 verse one says this, when the Sabbath was passed, Mary Magdalene, Mary, the mother of James and Salome, all brought spices so they might go and anoint him, being Jesus. And very early on the first day of the week, when the sun had risen, they went to the tomb. Mark 16 opens with Mary Magdalene, Mary, and Salome. these three disciples of Jesus. The inclusion, them showing up, their names right here, points us right back to the end of chapter 15, if you were with us for Good Friday. These women were those final witnesses who saw and attested to, they witnessed the death of Jesus on his cross. And so, what we could call, you know, Mary's, the Marys and Salome, or Mary's and Co. witnessed this. this On Friday, shameful and excruciating death of their teacher, their rabbi, their friend, Jesus on a Roman cross. And though in many ways Jesus is not unique within history, the way that Jesus died is actually not all that unique. For these women, the witnessing side of Jesus being pinned to this Roman cross and dying there was not unique at all. Thousands of Jews, history tells us, had been crucified in the years leading up to and following Jesus' own death. A couple of decades later, when the global superpower Rome crashed and, and uh, pulled down Jerusalem, uh, many historians tell us that uh, Rome crucified over 500 Jews a day. To these disciples here, Mary and co, Mary's and co, Jesus' death was simply one more sad statistic and a long line of brutally executed criminals, slaves, innocent, and would-be messiahs. Friday was the stark reminder, this is how the world is. Rome reigns, might makes right, injustice, chaos, and death are king in this domain of darkness that we call planet Earth. This is how our world is. Yeah, Jesus' teachings, you know, the miracles, the kingdom of God, all of that was great and offered some kind of hope and dream for a better world and better life. But those dreams, like him, now lay dead This is how our world really is. Mark 16, the Easter story, the Christian story, begins not with a cheery and optimistic view of our world, but the blank, looking right in your face realism of a broken, chaotic world that is bent out of shape. And the cross for these disciples was only one more example of that reality. And so this hopeless depression over Friday, Saturday, and now Sunday morning had settled over these disciples, the sort of hopeless depression that has likely settled over you at some point in your life or will, as they begin to make their way back to the tomb where they saw him laid to anoint, to mourn, to respect their dead rabbi, their dead teacher and friend. Mark 16, verse 3. And as they were making their way, the women, they said to one another, who will roll away the stone for us at the entrance of the tomb? On their way back to the tomb, they recall what we had just seen on Friday, where after Jesus was laid into the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea, this large stone is, is rolled into place. The whole point is keeping anyone from getting in. And so the question they ask is, as they make their way, how are we going to mourn? How are we going to respect our lost loved one in a sense behind all mourning is the question, how are we going to move on with our lives? It's the same question around the, the innumerable amount of non-funerals that happened over this course of the year. How will we move on? Who will roll away the stone? Now is this just kind of them asking themselves and, and holding a hopeless and helpless state? There's many that would point to that this might be kind of a tongue-in-cheek jab at the fact that all the 12 male burly disciples, they're all cowering in fear. And so as they make their way to the tomb, they're kind of like, who will roll away the stone for us little ladies because we're all the 12 men. But regardless, the stone stands before them as this great immovable obstacle that is keeping these women from mourning, like I said, from moving on with their lives. And this is in many ways how our own life is At the risk of over-spiritualizing the story here, our lives feel hopeless and helpless between the stone before us, this giant obstacle, or even plural, obstacles that keep us from moving on, from coping with our lives within this world. Some giant obstacle or stone, a broken relationship, some moment of broken trust or trauma, a habit or addiction, some overbearing fear or shame, guilt, failure, the thing I'll never recover from, the thing I'll never break through, who will roll away the stone so I can move on with my life? As we join Mary's and company in their helpless and hopeless wondering, who, who is gonna roll this away so that I can live again? Our world and our lives. Verse four, and looking up as they make their way to the tomb, they saw that the stone had been rolled away. And it was very large, I love this, <laughs> there's no point in the con- of the story, just Mark being like, and it, it's not any little stone, it was very large. And as they enter into the tomb, they saw this young man sitting on the right side, dressed in a white robe, and they were alarmed, startled. The question that had been, the, the, the point of conversation as they had made their way to the tomb, now somehow has been answered by some unknown force. The stone has been rolled away. And as they move into the tomb, the place of death, they find this man dressed in white clothes. The other gospels make it a little more explicit. This is some sort of angelic figure. And here, residing in the place of death, is this this person of of heavenly life standing there. They're alarmed at the sight of this. Could this be some form of a turning point? Verse 6. And this angelic figure says to the women, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who is crucified, but he is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. Right here in this moment, they receive not just category-shattering news for them, but history-splitting news that, if true, radically redefines their and our entire understanding of what sort of a world we're living in. This news that he has risen, he is not here. This news of of resurrection is utterly unique throughout all of history. Yeah, you look throughout history and all these other religious and faith systems that have existed and continue to exist, and there's some sense of life after death, ghosts and spirits in the underworld, wherever that might be. But life after life after death, Resurrection, the word Anastasis, standing up again, that physical body that you lived in, now living again, you all in your embodied self, that is completely unique within world history. With one exception being for the Jewish people, They had some sense of this standing up again, of bodies living again, like Ezekiel 37, we looked at a moment ago. But Ezekiel 37, at least their reading on it, was that that would come, that resurrection of the dead would come for the righteous at the end of history, what they called the age to come, when God would put all things to right, when justice would reign, when the empires would be set in place, and in fact, set down when peace and security and safe, the age to come, resurrection was all measured within that. That was the, the far-off hope for most Jews in Jesus' time. But here, we have something not just unique in world history, but unprecedented in the Hebrew and the Israelite history, is the resurrection of one person. <laughs> Some person, it's almost like he's, he's this breaking in of the age to come that has now happened right here and right now not just unique, but unprecedented. Here we stand, Easter Sunday, while these women would have received it and you and I are being invited to receive it today, is we stand at a turning point in world history that the world of the age to come is in fact breaking into, overlapping within the world as we know it and our place in it. And if true, this redefines the world that we live in, where injustice, where empire, Chaos, brokenness, evil, and not even death get the final word. That There's a new king in town. Now, many of us are tempted to hear this and, and you know, maybe join in with uh, Mary's and Salome and say, cool story, angel boy. That's not the world that we live in. Entropy reigns, dead people don't get up again. It seems like the women would agree with you. That's not the world that we live in which is why I, I love the angel calls for them and he says to them, he invites them, see the place where they laid him. The word see here in the Greek that Mark is writing and recounting this story is, is not just kind of, you know, take a, a glancing look, at oh yeah, there he's gone. It's, it's, it's behold. <laughs> it's look intently at. The language is, is utilized to, to point to investigation of something, a long, hard look at something. He invites them not to blind faith, pie in the sky, hope that there's a new world coming. He says, look, investigate, stare intently and longingly at the place where they laid him. I was having a conversation with my friend a few months back. He doesn't identify with a Christian, is kind of investigating and like, what is this whole thing about? And, and one of the questions that he asked me in, in our kind of normal conversations was, what, what really separates Christianity from like all the other world religions and ideologies? Like, you guys have, like, holy texts, you guys have songs you sing, you gather on a semi-regular basis, you have ethics and some sense of morals, right? Like, what's the big, some kind of hope for the afterlife? What's the difference that separate? why is this not all, why don't you guys all just, like, can't we be friends and get together on this thing? It's all more or less the same. The, the difference is that for Christianity, our whole thing is built on today, on a seeable, investigatable, a historical, a physical, empty tomb. This is what the whole thing's built on. This is what separates anybody that's here, you're gathering as a Christian today. Anybody that's looking in and wondering, what is a Christian? What is this whole thing about? It's about today. The Apostle Paul, this this early uh, pastor and writer within the other church, 1 Corinthians 15, one of my favorite passages in all of scripture. He goes on a rant like only a preacher can do where he goes down this whole line of why the resurrection is so important, the physical, bodily, investigatable resurrection of Jesus. And he says that if it has not happened, the Christian faith is in vain. This whole thing is moot and and it's a waste of your time. Even more than that, he says that all of us who walk around saying that Jesus is raised, we are liars. And then he ends with saying, if the resurrection is not true, then Christians are history's greatest fools pitiable among everyone else. Our whole thing is built on an empty tomb. And so we may be tempted to say that's not the sort of world that we look in, but the angel invites you and me to lean in, to look closer, to investigate. Because for these earliest disciples and billions throughout history, as many of us gathering here today and around the world right now, for those of us who have leaned in a little bit closer, who have investigated the empty tomb and have found this story to be true, to believe that there is in fact a new world dawning, This has motivated not just a vision for the world to come, but the fact that it's dawning right here and right now and contributed their lives to seeing that happen. The greatest movements of justice throughout history have been motivated by people with a sense of a resurrection world. The first hospitals, the first schools, the first orphanages, care for the poor, All the abolition movements, racial reconciliation, there's a lot that this book has been misused as it's been torn out of context. But when the resurrection story and its full biblical portrait is held by a people, it leads to a resurrection world beginning to dawn and bloom right in our midst. All of it driven by Christians who seeing the empty tomb see a new world dawning and they believe that this isn't just something we wait for, it's something that is happening right here in our midst. And so the resurrection of Jesus is not simply hope for a new world that we wait for, but a new world that we now live in as we continue to live within a world where pandemics and death and injustice and empires continue to go. Verse seven, the angel ain't done and neither am I. He says this to them now, but go, go tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee. There you will see him just as he told you. The two Marys and Siloam receive here this similarly category-shattering, not just news, but now commission, which redefined and redestined the lives of the disciples and Peter. These disciples that the angel here is talking about, if you've been with us over Mark's gospel, how have they been doing over the past few days? They have all blown it time and time. And again, in the garden of Gethsemane, most of the disciples, you know, they flee at Jesus' arrest. Peter swings a sword at somebody. And then before a little girl, Peter denies Jesus three times. The commission of the angel is not just to go, hey, gather up all the people that are waiting for Jesus. It's a commission to go and get the people that by all counts are no longer disciples which is so profound that Peter gets called out by name. There is a whole thing for us right there, but we don't have time for it. These disciples here, who at this point in the story were dead in fear and guilt and shame and failure, shut into the now cul-de-sac and dead end of their story, like the stone before the tomb. And the resurrection of Jesus here brings for them a turning point for their lives. Easter does not just mean a turning point for our world, but a turning point for your life and my life as well. These flawed and failed ex-disciples are to receive from these women news of an empty tomb and news of a new life and a new commission with it. Their lives seemed one way, but now something has happened that completely and fundamentally changes their lives. The stone has been rolled away like Lazarus. They are being called to come out. If true, this redefinition, this resurrection, redestination of our lives means that selfishness and pride and our fear and shame and guilt, our sin no longer have the final word, no longer have any hold on us. There is a new king in town. Now, once again, some of us are tempted to hear this, and we reply, cool story, angel boy, but that's not the life that I live. That's not the person that I am. That's not my story. That in fact, as I look over my story, there's a cul-de-sac of two steps forward, three steps back most of the time, or some sort of dead end that I live within. And if we were to sit down with Peter and company, meanwhile, as the women are there at the empty tomb, they would agree with you. They blew it at such a fundamental level, following Jesus, discipleship to him, that was a thing of the past with their story which is why Jesus, commissioned, Jesus the angel, commissions these women to go gather them up and go to Galilee so that they may what? See him. A moment ago, we talked about seeing the empty tomb, and here the angel also talks about seeing, seeing not an empty tomb, but seeing Jesus. But he uses a different word than what he used before. Here in the Greek, as we're reading, see is the same for us. Mark, writing it originally in Greek, he gives it a little different spin, not just see, not just investigate, not like look longingly too, but see is language of, of, of visitation, to see to something, an experience of something, a visit, a being with someone. And so as our hope for the new world is not grounded in, in pie-in-the-sky hope, but in an empty tomb, our hope for our new lives is not grounded in moralism or try-better-next-time religiosity, But based in an experience with the resurrected Jesus. Peter, who denied Jesus, denied his his allegiance to Jesus three times before this little girl by a bonfire, as we move along and we we jump ahead into his story, we find him become not this timid, running around, headstrong kind of guy, but we find a boldness, a courageousness, and one that is that is meddled with, with faithfulness and consistency. Over the course of his ministry where this ex-disciple now becomes this apostle leading the charge of planning these churches and advancing the message of the resurrection. All the way to the point of being crucified upside down rather than renouncing and denying Jesus, what he had just done a few decades before. What was the turning point for Peter? What completely redefined? What redestined his life? What made a timid man become bold? Seeing him experiencing the resurrected Jesus, being with the resurrected Jesus. It was true for Peter. It was true for all of these disciples. It was true for the 500 other eyewitnesses to the resurrected Jesus in the days following. It is true for every single one of us who identify as a Christian here and all over the world today is that we, our lives, met a turning point when we experienced the resurrected Jesus. And that same turning point is available to each and every single one of us today, wherever we may be. A turning point that comes, a new life available and possible where there wasn't one, a stone rolled away through an experience with the resurrected Jesus. More than just forgiveness and a new start, it's a new life. And that invitation is true for flawed and failed disciples like me and like Peter, and for everyone and anyone in the world. Mark 8, as we look at our final verse here. And so these women, hearing this commission, they went out, fleeing from the tomb, for trembling and astonishment had seized them, and they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. And so ends the earliest account of the resurrection of Jesus, Mark's gospel. Three women fleeing for their lives in terror, telling no one. Now, what we know from the other Gospels and the fact that we have this book is that in the hours to come, that, that fear would be replaced by a boldness and these women would become the first heralds of the first Easter Sunday sermon that the resurrection has happened. And the reality is that we wouldn't have this story if it wasn't for these women. We wouldn't be reading it. If, if, if they went away fleeing and never told anybody, we wouldn't be hearing this story. But the reality is, is that they give this to us and so we have this eyewitness account of the faithfulness, the testimony of the empty tomb. But before we end, I wanna return to the two emotions these women experience in hearing of this turning point for their world and their lives. The two emotions that Mark details is they feel simultaneously trembling and astonishment. Trembling, quivering with fear, terror. This is, you know, startled, spooked, like you're, oh my goodness, and astonishment. The word underneath this is where we get the word ecstatic. This is leaping for joy, over the moon, excited. And they are feeling both of these, not one after the other, at the very same time. Trembling and astonishment. There's only been a few moments of my life where I've experienced anything close to this. And they were all at turning points in my own. My wedding day and the birth of of Emma and then last year with the birth of, of Arlo. Seeing Aaron coming down the aisle, seeing Emma right here before me or Arlo being held up, is, uh, this trembling and astonishment, An over, th- th- this, this changes everything. Like, oh my, I'm never going to sleep again, right? Like, oh my God, I've, I've married this person. Like, this is my life now. Is this, this, oh my gosh, this is what it is. And at the same time, this changes everything that I'm, I'm a dad now, I'm a dad, of a, I'm, I have a little boy, I'm married now, to, to, how did this happen? Like, how did we get here? How did I connive and trick her into the, this is this is what's, the turning point of a trembling at, oh my gosh, this changes everything, and that's terrifying, and this changes everything, oh my goodness. Many of you have likely experienced similar turning points of both trembling and astonishment in your own life, of that acceptance into college, or that dream job that happened, so too, as we reach a turning point for our world and our lives in pandemic, we're experiencing a sort of trembling and a joy. We can't wait to get back to our lives and we're like, I have to do small talk again? I have to look for parking, traffic? Oh my gosh, the fear that is overwhelming. These are all small analogies of what these women experienced and what each person has been has experienced, is invited to experience again or invited to experience for the first time the emotional experience of what the resurrection means for our world and our lives. Trembling and fear at the unknown changes to our lives of what it means to follow Jesus. That if this is true, it changes everything about the world as I know it and my life as I live it. And it is a terrifying, terrifying reality that if Jesus is risen, it changes my whole life but also with astonishment. If Jesus has risen from the dead, the incredible changes, the freedom and forgiveness, the life and empowerment, the joy, the community that comes with following and being a part of his people, that this is true, it changes everything. If Jesus is risen, my world, though the empires continue, though injustice and chaos and death continue to spread, that I have an empty tomb to point myself to. And even in the midst of my own selfishness and sin and brokenness, that it's like resurrected life, that I I have a Jesus to experience in that moment who reminds me that even when I feel like I'm still in some way dead in my trespasses, he raises me up and reminds me that there's a life that I have with him and in him. Easter is the proclamation that because of the empty tomb and the resurrected Jesus, there has been a turning point in our world and our lives. And though we are not out of the woods yet, though empires and justice, pandemics and death continue in our world, though selfishness and failure and sin continue in ours as well, justice, healing, reconciliation, the life of the world to come, the selflessness, faithfulness and holiness of our lives in the age to come are dawning and blooming right here in the midst of this dying one. As N.T. Wright puts it, The resurrection opens up before those who would follow Jesus, a new life and a new world. And that new life and new world, though they will be fulfilled in the life yet to come, resurrection demands and declares it begins here and now. There are many of us that have some ancillary distant picture of what the Easter message is all about. Some form of believe in Jesus, go to heaven when you die, some kind of forgiveness. And in the meantime, try not to sin too much. Maybe give some money to the poor here and there. Go to church until you die. And that's more or less kind of what the Easter message gets really baked down to. What I've tried to show us today for myself is a reminder that Easter is about the very resurrection power of the kingdom of God breaking into our world and our lives And now in the midst of all of this world's mess and our mess, with trembling and astonishment, we begin to walk in the implications of the resurrected age to come. Let's pray.